Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day. I want to say that to all the fathers that are out there, and especially my dad, if you're watching, Dad. Happy Father's Day to you. Um, we uh, are Church of the Atonement. We are gathered here for worship, still virtually uh, for now, and we want to let you know if this is your first time joining us for worship this morning, we're so thankful to have you being a part of our fellowship. Uh, we look forward to that day when we can meet you face-to-face, um, where we can maybe look through under or over the face masks and greet one another and get to know uh, how the Lord has been speaking to you uh, in this uh, season. But uh, if this is your first time, we'd love for you to let us know. Please leave a comment on Facebook or you can send us an email at info at We'd love to know um, how we could uh, be praying for you and better support you in, uh, in your journey through life. Now, I want to let everyone know that um, this week we had a lot of emails going out from our office. Um, some very important emails went out, and hopefully you received those. If you're not receiving our emails, please make sure you go to our website. On our homepage, there's a form you can fill out about halfway down that uh, will allow you to submit uh, a request to be on our mailing list. We would love to get you plugged in so that you know the happenings and important information that uh, is pertaining to our church, especially as we k- get closer to regathering here in our building. Um, so one of the big emails that went out was the Atonement Life, and it's got all sorts of things in there about the ministry that is taking place currently in our church. One cool thing we started last week was a feature that we're calling Coffee with the Pastor, and it was a time where we had a small Zoom meeting with me and about 15 other people. And we just had some time for conversation and questions, and I just have to say, it was way better than I ever thought it was going to be. I I thought it was going to be great, and God just blew me away with what an encouragement it was to spend time with one another, and for me to just be encouraged to hear how God has been uh, working in people's lives, and and just for us to have some time to to see each other face to face. So that's happening again this week, Wednesday at 12 p.m. The sign-up details are in Atonement Life, so if you'd like to be a part of that, please sign up. Uh, we'd love to meet you in that uh, that venue. If it's already filled up, you can sign up for one of the weeks that are coming up uh, in the next month. Another big email that came out uh, this week was one from our reopening committee, um, and. As many of you might know, Montgomery County has, uh, has cleared the way for churches to begin meeting, but there are s- severe restrictions on the amount of people you can have in a given space, and uh, there are important protocols that they want in place whenever you open your doors and have people in. So we're currently still finalizing our plans for that and trying to see how we can best accommodate for everyone's well-being and safety and, and prepare for regathering. We're calling this this whole plan that we're trying to unfold, the regathering plan, because the fact is the church technically never closed. God's people have still been at work and still been doing the Lord's work in ministry. Uh, We just haven't been able to gather in this one place. So we look forward to gathering once again, and uh, we're unfolding pieces of that regathering plan as we feel confident about uh, being able to take that step. And so the uh, email came out that the session has approved for us to move to step one of our regathering process. And step one might not seem like a big victory, but I personally think it's a huge victory. And that is we're encouraging a lot of small group off-site ministry. So for instance, some of you may be gathered for the first time as a family together for worship in the living room or in an outdoor space. And you might be streaming worship together today. We think that's awesome. After uh, months of just having 
just, you know, you and whoever lives in your house with you, it's nice to be able to have the body of Christ around you with family or friends or a small group. So we want to encourage, maybe if you feel comfortable, getting together, acknowledging all the protocols that, and guidelines we should be following, but getting together and worshiping together on a Sunday morning. We think that'll be a great encouragement as we begin regathering. It's kind of similar to the church, uh, the early church in Acts, where they met in households for uh, worship and for prayer time. The other thing uh, that we want to encourage is getting together for your small group. So if you have a small group or a Bible study, find ways, be creative, and, and see if your folks are ready to get back together and to spend some time in fellowship together. Uh, same goes for youth ministry. Uh, it can be an off-site ministry that happens in that way. And children's ministry will be having a special at-home edition of Family Bible Camp this year. We wanted to make sure that things were in place for people to be able to uh, participate in that. So that's a big deal. Um, some guidelines, you know, just to kind of remind everyone. I mean, we hear these all the time, but we want to encourage safe distancing. We want to encourage you to, to feel comfortable wearing face masks if you feel that's important for you. If you're in a high-risk category, please use extra caution. Our zip codes in our media area still have a, a lot of uh, presence of COVID cases, so we want to be careful. If you have great outdoor spaces, please utilize those. Um, the other thing that we're, we want to kind of introduce and suggest is adopting a symptom-free wellness policy. And a symptom-free wellness policy basically means that you can participate in these events as long as you're symptom-free. Not symptoms of just COVID, but any kind of symptoms of sickness. The fact is, we don't really know all the symptoms, and people may be asymptomatic whenever uh, they are, are traveling around with COVID. And so we want to just take extra precaution. If you have a symptom and it's not been diagnosed by a doctor, you have a sickness and it's, you don't quite have a name for what it is, then we ask that you just exercise some extra care and maybe wait until you're better to participate uh, with your, your brothers and sisters in Christ. They will thank you and they will look forward to having you rejoin them once you either have a diagnosis and are on some medication for a cold or allergies or something like that. Just make sure you go through the protocol that's necessary so we're not being careless as we try to gather together in this time. We think that'll be really important and just give a lot of, uh, of uh, comfort to those that we're, uh, we're meeting with in this time. Well, that's all that I have for our opening announcements. I know that was a lot, but there's some important things we needed to cover. I'd like to transition from that kind of logistical time into this time that we come together for uh, worshiping God with a word of prayer. So would you please join me in prayer? Father, I thank you so much for your goodness, and I thank you for the privilege of gathering together in your name and, and being called your people. And we pray, Father, for your help as we gather for worship this morning. Help us to um, set aside all cares and all concerns. Help us to uh, ready our minds and our hearts to be fed and nourished by your truth. And help our hearts to respond and give you praise and adoration that you deserve, even though we may be uh, hindered and encumbered by many distractions and discouragements. Father, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What a great privilege it is to come and to worship God. Wherever you are this morning, whether you be in your home, whether you be outside, as Pastor Ryan said, we've come this morning to exalt, to lift up, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
And God calls us to worship this morning from Psalm 34. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear God have no lack. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, let's sing together. This is my Father's world. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, is and the wonders wrought. This is my Father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. 
Worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I'll worship Your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I worship Your holy name. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on singing. Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I worship Your holy name. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years and then forevermore. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I worship Your holy name. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul, oh, my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship your holy name. Yes, I worship your holy name. Brothers and sisters, please bow your, your heads and your hearts for our great creator and come down to a time of confession. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, in the beginning 
you designed a globe. You formed it to be habitat. You furnished it as the perfect place for the crown of your creation. Triune God, you made man and woman in your image, in your likeness, to live in the earth, to be fruitful, to multiply, to discover the latent potential that you had placed within the earth. Our God, you made mankind to live upon your every word. Our eternity is based on total obedience to your word. Every human being's life finds its complete satisfaction in relationship with you. We confess, Father God, we believe and often still believe the lies of Satan and the powers of darkness. We believe the lie that you, God, want to withhold true good from us. We confess to you our fears of not being supreme over our own lives. We confess that we doubt you. We doubt your power. We doubt your love. We doubt your plan. We often lose hope. We turn the eyes of our souls away from you to created things that were never, never intended to fill our innermost hungers. Father, Father, this morning, forgive us. Forgive us, O oh God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and the only Savior. We make this prayer to you, our creator and the guide of all history. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. God's word gives us assurance that through the Lord Jesus, our sins, our rebellion, it's forgiven. In John 11, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Amen. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm going to pray once more for the offering that the Lord gives. Our Father, we thank you for the offering, for the provision 
time of talent of our tenth of other offerings, O God, that you give through your people, not only to this church, but to your church all over the world. We pray, O God, that we be found faithful using your offerings for your kingdom work. This we ask in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to present a song called Strange Joy. It's by recording artist Bob Bennett, who gave a concert here at the church uh, a short while ago. This is a song that speaks about peace in the middle of trial, uh, that in the darkest day there is light that's given to us. Um, and, and in that way, the joy that we can feel is sometimes strange. But that's not the only reason that this joy is uh, odd or unexpected. Um, there's also a peculiar kinship uh, that we have with Christ in suffering because even though it be in small measures, we experience uh, a, a little bit of what he experienced uh, in his love for us. And that's what the song is about, Strange Joy. I hope that you will make it the prayer of your hearts. I will not bless my sorrow. I will not praise my pain. But I will bless the Lord who calls me to bear these wounds again. For I was tossed like the waves on the ocean, blown like the wind on the land. But he delivers me from the misery of the double-minded man and gives me this strange joy, this peace in the middle of trial, this strange joy surrounding my desperate denial, this strange joy barely understood that from the night of trouble dawns the day of good. I could not see the sense of it. I always complained and rebelled. I dismissed any thought of redemption, defied the belief that I held. But if the last are first and the rich are poor, if the blameless is mocked and despised, if life is found in the losing, 
then why am I so surprised at this strange joy, this peace in the middle of trial, this strange joy surrounding my desperate denial, this strange joy barely understood that from the night of trouble dawns the day of good in the darkness of my trouble shines the light of his good and he gives me Strange joy. Thank you, worship team. Well, I want to say good morning to all the boys and girls out there. It's time for our children's message. <clears throat> and something that I mentioned in the announcement time is something we're going to be talking about right now. And that is that this is a very special day for many of us in our families because today is Father's Day. That's right. Father's Day is usually a really fun day. And some of you might not see this message right now because sometimes fathers like to go out and go camping or do something fun on Father's Day mornings. Um, but Father's Day is always a fun day because we get to celebrate our dads. We get to thank God for the ways our dads love us and care for us and think about all the ways in which um, you know, they, they are fathers to us and help us to grow up to be big boys and girls so that one day we can be big boys and girls who may have children of our own. Now, while Father's Day is a happy day for a lot of us, it's also important to remember that not everyone has fun on Father's Day. There's some people in our church, there's some people maybe even in our, in our families, where Father's Day is a little bit more sad. And it might be sad because they don't have their daddies around them anymore. It might be sad because they never really got to know their daddies very much. And so sometimes when some of us are really happy about Father's Day, Others in our family or our friends might be kind of sad about it. They might not be as happy as we are. One of the things I love about the Bible and I love about the church is that God's Word tells us so much about God. And one of the things that it tells us is that God wants to be like a father to His people. So for us in the church, if we know Jesus and love Jesus, for any one of us, the Bible tells us that God wants to be our Father, and He wants us to know Him. And so you have to think about what that means for God to be our Father. Well, the Bible tells us that God loves us, that God wants to protect us, that God provides for us and gives us the things that we need, that God listens to when we're scared or when we're hurting, that God uh, does all sorts of things to help us to grow up to be 
boys and girls, big boys and girls, who look a lot like his family, who look like Jesus. And that's what we've been talking about in our big people messages this week. And so on Father's Day, whether it's a really happy day or even a day that kind of makes us a little bit sad, in the church, it's always good news to think about Father's Day, to think about how God wants to be our Father, how He wants to care for us and love us in the most perfect way, and how He wants us to know Him and know His heart. Um, And that's a special message that we can remember today, even as we celebrate our fathers, and one that a lot of other people need to know and hear. So I wanted to share that with you. And at this time, let's take a moment and let's thank God for the gift of fathers. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ways that you care for us and that you've created families and you've put fathers and father figures in our lives to love us and to help us to grow into the people you want us to be. We thank you for the ways in which your word speaks to us about your love and how you care for us and how you work to help us become better so that we might live more and more to look like Jesus. We thank you for this day and we celebrate all the fathers in our church and in our families. We pray, Father, that you would make this a wonderful day, a day of celebration. And we also ask, Father, for you to reveal yourself and and to share your love with those who are hurting today, those who are missing their fathers because they have passed away, or those who have never known their fathers. Lord, may they find comfort in seeing how you love and care for them today. Help us to remember this message and to cherish it in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we move into... uh, You have to excuse me, I forgot my Bible. There we go. As we move into our, uh, our big people sermon today, we're picking up this morning in uh, the part of Peter's letter where he's been getting very practical. Uh, he's been explaining what it looks like to be holy or live in holy ways in everyday life. And so Peter begins this section in his letter. I want to read this part again. He begins this section in his letter in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So Peter explains that really the way we live has an important purpose. It's how God reveals himself to the world. It's how he starts to remove ignorance. Remember we talked about last week, ignorance is not knowing. There's a lot of people who don't know what Christianity is all about, and they certainly don't know the living God as we know him. And so the way that we live is supposed to be a visible witness, a way that people uh, begin to see who God is and who Christians are in Christ. And so Peter begins to give encouragement for how to be holy, and he looks at three contexts to kind of summarize everyday life. And so those contexts are life as a citizen, life as an employee, and life as a spouse. So last week we looked at holy living as a citizen. And last week we saw that Peter generally views governing authorities as good things. They're here to help enforce good and to protect people and to punish those who are evil. And so Peter's instruction for Christians is to be good citizens. In basic terms, he says, in order to be a good citizen of the kingdom, you have to be a good citizen of your community and country. And so 
Peter instructed them uh, to show honor to the authorities that are over them, not because the authorities deserve it necessarily, but because we do it, as verse 13 said, for the Lord's sake. Our public life as citizens is a major venue for God to reveal and remove ignorance in the world. It's a major venue for people to see what God is like and how holy he is. And so we help people who do not know him to know him by the way that we live as citizens in the countries and communities. So right now, that is an important word for us to obey. If you missed last week's sermon, I highly encourage you to go to our website or Facebook page and check it out. I think it's very relevant for life today. But now this week, we're moving from looking at how do we be holy as citizens in our everyday life, but how do we live holy lives in the workplace? Now, truthfully, what we're going to see in our passage today very quickly is that Peter's not exactly addressing uh, vocational life in the modern corporate world. Okay, But once again, there are principles in this passage that are just as important for Christians today as they were then. But in order for us to uh, see how these principles in our passage are applicable for us, I think it's helpful for us to get a picture of the landscape, uh, the vocational landscape, that is, in ancient Rome. So being an ancient civilization, when we think about the Roman Empire, we would not think of it in terms of a corporate world. You know, we wouldn't think there would be a, a corporate world that existed in Roman times. But really, there kind of was. Just like today, there was the stratification of, of classes, there was an upper class and a middle class and a lower class. And even within those classes, there was a stratification of privilege and influence that people experienced. And so while there were no Fortune 500 companies in the Roman Empire, there were, in some sense, enterprises that were supported with different classes of people. And so what we find is that in both rural and urban contexts in the Roman Empire, there were often the wealthiest citizens. And these would be those who would own land. These would be the politicians and the governors and rulers of districts. And these wealthy citizens would not make their earnings or their living by belonging to a guild and, and servicing uh, the community with a trade. Nor would they harvest their own fruits uh, from their orchards or vineyards and sell those things or make wares for the market. Now, the wealthiest people in Rome often employed many others to manage and support their personal enterprises. And so it was quite common for a wealthy Roman to pay both slaves and free people to be his labor force. And it was expected that all who were employed by him would follow and meet his expectations. So before we get into our reading today, I just want to acknowledge there's some difficult realities that are presented in Scripture, and namely the mention of slavery. Um, now, anytime that we read the Scriptures, we have to be very careful that we do not import our understanding into the text and try to take what we think that word means and say that's what that word means. The goal of learning from the Scriptures is that we are taking the meaning of the text and importing its meaning into our lives. This is the goal anytime that we open up the Bible, but it's especially important when we deal with sensitive issues or sensitive topics especially something like slavery. Because often in America, when we read about slavery in the Bible, what comes to mind is what we have experienced and learned about in American history, and that is uh, chattel slavery, you know, slavery that kind of falls along racial lines that oppressed a certain race or group of people. Now, I want to say slavery in ancient Rome was very different. 
Now, it certainly was harsh and hard. There were times when it was unjust and, and frankly, quite severe, but it was not enforced solely along ethnic or racial lines. One could become a slave from a variety of ways. It was not uncommon also for slaves to obtain their freedom after so many years of service or by purchasing out their, their, um, their slavery. Nor was it uncommon for some slaves to receive education or be put in a, a position of influence and responsibility in charge of aspects of the estates. Okay, so in many ways, slavery in Rome operated a little bit more like a true social class than a systemic oppression. Now, while some slaves in Rome had privileges of education and great influence in the household, they were still subject to their master's wills, and they were servants of the household. And as property of the household, they were expected to conform to the expectations of their master, and failure to do so could result in some serious hardship. But slaves, we need to remember, are not the only ones who are at risk uh, for their Christian faith in their daily work life. Slaves would kind of represent some of the, the lower and middle class, but the other aspects of the middle class would be free Roman citizens who participated in guilds who were then contracted employed and employed by the, the wealthy uh, Roman leaders. And so guilds we need to think about uh, in terms of, they're, they're kind of similar to unions in the sense that everyone needs to kind of fall in line and support the values of the guild. And so when you were working for a wealthy Roman, even free people had to conform not only to the household expectations, but also the expectations of their guild. This is an important detail for us to consider as we think about how this applies to our life. In ancient Roman Empire, in the ancient Roman Empire, it was an extremely religious society. We, we often think it was pagan and pluralistic, and so we might think because there were so many gods that people could worship, and there was somewhat of a, an ambiguous religious freedom, we might think that they didn't care. But the fact is they, they cared a lot, that religion was extremely important to the Roman Empire. We might remember about the many Roman gods in Roman mythology. And Rome basically had a cultural belief that it, it believed that its rapid rise to power came from the favor of the gods. And that its security and its success comes from how much favor they earn from the, the gods. And so what this did was it, it made them feel that adherence and, and, um, and uh, building favor with the gods was of utmost imp importance. Not just in kind of the political sphere, but in every sphere of life. And so this belief trickled down into cultural life. What this meant was households and guilds would often adopt patron deities um, to help support their causes and support the success and, and good fortune of the house. And so the expectation, both from guilds and masters, was that everyone would participate in the religious observances, such as the feasts and the drinking parties and worse. As from a Roman point of view, failure to participate in these practices, this civic religion, it was, it was a big threat. It was viewed as a way of of unsettling the community. It was a, viewed as a way of angering the gods, and it was viewed as a great form of dishonor. This is really important for us to remember because now Christians, these new believers that Peter's writing to, they're called to a new way of living. 
They began to exclusively worship one God, and they began to refrain from participating in all those cultic practices of the uh, patron worship of these deities. And so the repercussions, the hardships, could be quite severe. They could lose their loss, or they could lose their source of income, and they could be beaten and abused. This resistance to participate in honoring Roman deities, it was often viewed as as kind of a a civil form of, of treason. You'd anger the gods, you'd bring shame and failure to the household and the guild. And so, in the ancient world, even in the ancient world, there were extreme pressures in the workplace to conform to the culture. Christians often found themselves in very difficult situations where they could be mistreated and pressured to conform. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but I think many can identify with that feeling in the workplace. And so Peter knows how important it is to give guidance to the working class. How should new Christians live every day in the places that they work? How should they live out their faith? What does it look like to be holy in the places where they work? Peter gives them three reminders. The first reminder that we see is Peter reminds them of the importance in their living to live holy. He reminds them of the importance of living with grace. Peter encourages Christian slaves to respect and submit to their masters, not only when their masters are good and gentle, but even when they are harsh. Listen to what he writes in verses 18 and 19. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Those are some hard words coming from Peter. Peter explains that when God's people show respect to their masters, even when their masters are harsh, it's actually grace in action. Remember, grace is when someone receives something, some kind of goodness that they don't deserve. As God's people, we should be familiar with grace. It's what Peter highlights so much in the first part of his letter, how God made us part of his family. Not because we were less sinful, not because we were better or more virtuous than other people, but God chose us because he chose us. It was an exercise of his grace that we would be brought in and blessed as his people. And that's what Peter is describing here. Just as God was gracious towards us, we should exercise grace towards others, even as they mistreat us. The same thing that God uses to transform us in knowing how much he gives it to us, even though we don't deserve, God says, now you should live that out in your life towards those who mistreat you. When we first started talking about being holy, I said that being holy can be best understood as taking on the family resemblance. What Peter is telling people is that even in your slavery, even in your servitude, it's about being holy as God is holy. It's about displaying God's character. Everything that makes God so wonderful. It's about displaying that in the way that you live. And so as God is gracious, we should display grace in the way that we live, even to those who don't deserve it. Notice here in Peter's words that the, the motive for living with grace is not self-focused. It's God-focused. 
You could imagine that Peter would say, you know, you should live grace-filled lives so that way your masters won't be harsh to you anymore and that way you would find favor with them. But that's not what he says at all. He says you should be mindful of God and live grace-filled lives. There's no promise that maybe your masters would turn around. It's actually a gracious thing that you just display the character of God in the way that you live. Much like life as a citizen, uh, gracious living flows out of a mindset upon God. Remembering verse 12 that God is using our holiness to reveal himself to the world, to remove ignorance from the world. And so we remember what God calls us to do and how he calls us to live. Peter then supports his argument for gracious living by saying in verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You know, frankly, it would be easy for people to feel as if giving respect to someone who mistreats you is just meaningless. You know, what's the point in showing respect to someone who dishonors you and is harsh towards you? It would be easy to think that's meaningless, but what Peter says here is it is not meaningless. In fact, it's redemptive. It's an outpouring of grace from God through you. It demonstrates the character of God to the world. It's a gracious thing in God's sight when you respect someone, even when they mistreat you. However, Peter says if you sin against your master, if you malign or disrespect him or disobey them, that is meaningless. That brings no good upon yourself and no glory to God. Instead of displaying grace, living that way is a disgrace. Do you understand that? Instead of displaying grace in our life, when we sin against our masters or when we try to rebel and try not to live in a graceful way, we, we are embodying a disgrace. We are showing a lack of grace. It's the opposite of how God responds to us. And therefore, it's unfruitful. For Christians to live in this way, Peter says, what good is it? It's interesting that, that Peter seems to promote this submission and respect towards masters. And he promotes it not based on how they treat us, but based on God's character. Where does Peter get this idea? Why should Christians be willing to subject themselves to these hardships? Peter reminds them of this principle of living out grace, but then he reminds them of the pattern for living with grace. In verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter's point is that Jesus' life is the example by which we live. Remember how in a couple verses earlier, a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus is the cornerstone. He is our pattern. He is the the stone or the foundation upon which we rest. And he is also the one in which our lives are built upon. And we align ourselves and measure ourselves according to his example, according to his placement. Well, how did he live? Peter writes in verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. That is the picture and pattern for what it looks like to live with grace. In Jesus' time on earth, he received so much unjust treatment. 
And Peter lists it out here in summary for us. Though he was sinless, he was sinned against over and over again, reviled. And we know how he suffered verbal and physical abuse leading up to the point of that brutal crucifixion. And some might be tempted to look at Jesus and think that Jesus was weak because he didn't respond and he didn't defend himself. But in Peter's words, Peter is highlighting that actually Jesus had great strength. How much self-control does it take to respond with the grace of Christ in all that he faced? What kind of mindset does someone need to live and pattern themselves after the likeness of Christ? Peter shows us how Jesus was mindful of God. He continues in verse 23 when he writes, that he didn't revile in return, he didn't threaten, but what did Jesus do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The source of Jesus' strength was his confidence in knowing his place uh, before God, his Father. Jesus was confident in God's justice, and it freed him to give grace to those, even who mistreated him. It freed him to give grace to people like you and me. There's a a modern theologian named Miroslav Volth, which I just love his name. Miroslav Volth is a modern theologian who experienced what it is like to live in a country that was torn apart by war and injustice. I just want to say, though I don't agree with every position that he takes on Scripture, I think he has something very helpful to say about this particular perspective about this call to living a grace-filled life. Basically, he says in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, his thesis that he wants to promote, is that the only way he can practice Christ-like nonviolence and non-retaliation, the kind of stuff that Peter seems to be describing here, the only way he can practice that is because he knows that God claims to be the one who judges justly. In other words, the only way he can live out grace and live with grace towards those who don't deserve it is because he knows that either in the cross or in the last day, all injustice is paid for. And knowing that is what frees him to live like Christ. That's what Jesus knew. This was the great source of Jesus' strength. He knew his position before the Father, that he was sinless, that he was justified. And he also knew that every offense would be paid, either by his time on the cross or when he comes again. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that. And it freed him to be able to live in the utmost grace and to exhibit God's character to the world. And so Peter reminds us of the pattern of, of, that we have in Christ, to live out grace Finally, Peter reminds us of the promise for living out grace. Verses 24 and 25, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might not give in to our our natural responses, but so that we would be patterned and shaped after him. 
to be made more like Him. Peter, in this, uh, these verses, he uses language so similar to Isaiah 53, reminding us that when we succeed in living out grace, in being gracious even to those who don't deserve it, it's a sign that we are being healed. And Peter claims that victory in the finished work of Christ. The healing has taken place in his wounds. We have been freed so that we can be gracious even to those who are harsh toward us. And though the language of straying sheep is found throughout the Old Testament, in no doubt in my mind that Peter remembers the many times that Jesus taught about his ministry and the security that comes through the symbolism of sheep. The promise serves as a foundation for holy living. Jesus knew he could endure every hardship he faced because at all times he knew his place before God the Father. And here Peter is reminding every believer of this reality, of the security we have, that Christ came for our healing and he accomplished that healing in his wounds so that we might no longer live in sin. We might no longer respond to our earthly masters or our co-workers or those under us in the, the responses that we would typically have that we no longer seek justice and vengeance for ourselves, but that we are now empowered to display God's grace in this world because we know He judges justly. We know that every sin was paid for in the cross or will be paid for on the last day. And that type of security enables us to live in this way. And so Peter, Peter says, we've returned home. We were like straying sheep, but now we've returned home and we are under the care and protection of the shepherd and overseer of our souls. No matter how hard those days might be, there's a confidence that we are secure. So even as this principle was presented to slaves in modern-day Turkey in Peter's day nearly 2,000 years ago, it's clear to see that it has a lot of relevance for our lives today. Though we certainly don't experience the same hardships of slavery we can feel compromised in our places of employment. There's a lot of legal protections that we uh, are privileged to have in America that, to keep us from experiencing severe hardships. And yet even so, there are still plenty of opportunities for ridicule and for unfair demands and unrealistic expectations. We still know the cultural pressures to acquiesce to the workplace environment, to kind of fall in line with everybody else. We know how easy it is to experience those hardships and to respond with harshness in ourselves, to try to vindicate ourselves and, and bring vengeance. There's still plenty of opportunities to experience the frustrations of being a Christian in the secular workplace. And so this passage is so valuable to us today. Peter's words were incredibly countercultural then, and they still are now. It's not a natural response in us to give respect to the people who hurt and insult us. But it's a purposeful response. It's one that is pointed at displaying the character of God, the character of Christ in our work relationships. As I said last week, the world is watching the church. The, the world is watching the church. The world was watching the church and is watching the church to see how we respond to this political atmosphere and how do we respond to the governments and authorities during COVID-19 and the societal uh, uh, issues that we're facing as a country with injustice. But the world has always been watching in the workplace to see what God's people are really like. 
So many times I've heard and watched people develop a disgust for Christianity and, and a rejection of the God of the Bible because of the way that their Christian boss or coworker or colleagues or employees behave in the workplace. So many times I've heard people say, well, if that's Christianity, I want no part of it. Far too many Christians forget that their workplace is a major venue for God's glory to be displayed. We too often justify our poor behaviors, the gossip, the slander, doing the bare minimum, mean-spirited management. We'll justify those things based on how we're being treated by our employees or our supervisors or our coworkers. We base the way that we will do our work upon their behavior or the rewards that we get out of it. But this principle that Peter uh, brings to our attention is that we don't base it on that. We base it on God and God's holiness and this call to look like the family that we have been brought into. God calls us to live differently. He calls us to be holy. Peter wasn't the only one to speak in these ways. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus along some very similar lines. Ephesus, a church also in part of what is now modern-day Turkey. Listen to Paul's words. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. It's a sad occasion that the words in First Peter and the words in the book of Ephesians have been used and weaponized to continue slavery in our culture. And I know many will read these words and take issue that they're not uh, taking on the systemic oppression that existed in the cultures at time, but that the Bible almost seems to condone those practices. And I can understand that criticism. But we need to understand that the goal of ministry in the time of the apostles was to get the gospel and truth of God and His grace and love to saturate individuals and change the way that they live, and through their life, begin to transform culture. And in fact, that's what we saw uh, throughout history. And so for us in the church, as we reflect on these principles, as we reflect on our place in the modern work environments in which we live, we might be thanking the Lord for a little bit of a breather, that we haven't had to be in the office, and we haven't had to face so-and-so and deal with all of the crap that they put us through on a weekly basis, right? Some of us are... Reg- just totally dreading the time when our offices reopen and we get back in the workplace and have to deal with those dynamics. But it it really is a great opportunity for the church and for this church to hit the reset button and to rethink how we approach our work, to understand that our work is not just something that we have to do to pay the bills, but our work is it's our vocation. It is a calling in which God wants to display His goodness and character and grace in the world. And it's, it's not an easy calling, but it is a platform for ministry. Nothing about this sounds easy. 
in what Peter is prescribing. But as we prepare to go back, what we can do is lean on Peter's reminders of who our pattern is and what the promise is that enables us and strengthens us to live out a gracious life. We are cultural influencers. God wants to use us. He wants to use you and me to reveal His grace in the world. At this time, there are many of those Many people who work around us, our supervisors, our co-workers, those who are in our employment, who don't know Jesus. They don't know God. And God wants to use us to display His likeness to them. To reveal what He is like and His goodness and love to them. In our vocation. This place where we spend so much of our time in our daily life. That's where God wants to display His glory. In our work and in our attitudes. And so what if when we return to those places where we work, what if you return to the office or to the routes or to the classrooms, wherever God has called you to serve in this season of life, what if we return and we look different to the world? What if when our supervisors or our coworkers and employees watch us return to work, they don't see the us they remembered, but in fact... They see someone else. What if they don't see our weakness and our sin? They don't see our, our propensity to respond in anger and to, to live in ways that are ingracious or, or disgraceful. But what if they see a new page has turned and they see that God's people are really serious? In fact, they don't see us, but they just see God in us. That's what Peter is calling these believers to, and what he calls us to. Wouldn't that be a wonderful vision for the church of Jesus Christ in coming out of COVID? We've had an intensive time of reflection and study to see our great need for strength of promise and grace, and that we would return to our workplaces with an understanding that we go as a witness to the goodness of God so that his glory would be revealed. Amen. May it be so. Let us pray. Father, thank you for these hard words and thank you for the hard work that sometimes it is and and how there's a a wonderful payoff in uh, studying your word and in bridging the cultural gaps. Lord, we thank you for the pattern that you give us in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to meditate on these words that Peter wrote, these words that he meant to inspire grace-filled living. Help us to see that we have great union with Christ both in his triumph and victory and also in his suffering, even in this place. Help us understand that as we suffer for your sake, as we deal with the hardships and the challenges and the pressures of the workplace, you desire to display your glory in us. Help us be willing vessels, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. continue in prayer as we lift up concerns and requests of our own congregation. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we bring our hearts before you with our concerns and our petitions. Our situations need you. We pray for our congregation. We mourn the loss of Frank Palumbo. Father, thank you for his faithfulness, 
take care of his wife all these years, even until you called him into your presence. I met Frank only once, but he was a very gracious person towards me. His wife and his children will need your comfort and your tender care. Holy Spirit, hug them. Hug them with your love and peace as they grieve. We ask you to provide the medical care that Robin Sloan needs. Father, our sister stands in need of your help today. And the scriptures teach us that you knew Robin before she was knit in her mother's womb. We ask you to direct Robin's path as only you can. We lift up Bev Rundell's mother. Father, when our loved ones are ill, we look to you for answers, for hope, for comfort, and for peace. Father, we ask your perfect will in the life of Bev's mom. Father, we ask you to calm her heart, her physical heart issues, and bring them under control. We pray that she may be able to leave the hospital and that stronger than when she entered. Father, guide her physicians and her family with wisdom on how to care for her. Father, we pray for Christy Lawson and for Matt and their children. We pray your great comfort and care, Lord, as they await the arrival of a new child. We pray for our brother Ryan McKay and ask you heal him, God of the skin cancer. We ask for your continued healing for Rick and Mike and Vicki. We ask, O oh God, your encouragement, your strength, your protection for the safety of all those working in the healthcare profession today. And Lord, we do lift up those in our congregation for Pamela, for Diane, for Timmy, for Nima. We pray, O oh God, that you heal and give strength to Andrea. Allison, to Grace and Ted, to Sue, to Susan, to Lyndon, to Lyle, to Ruth, to Anita, to Graceland, and to Lisa. Father, I pray that you encourage our congregation as they are at home. God, may they love and honor you. May they be quick to keep short accounts with their loved ones. May they love their neighbors. I pray that you would use each and every one, Lord, worshiping with us right now, use them this very week, Lord, to teach others who Jesus Christ is. We lift up our missionaries to you this morning. We ask your blessing upon the Benecourts, the Mebergs, the Bennets, the Thomases, to Paul Lewis to the Bonilla family. Increase their influence as they seek to lead others to Jesus and to establish your church and your word in the places where you've sent them all over the world. We pray for our country. In your supreme mercy, we ask you, O oh God, to eliminate COVID. We ask 
healing for those suffering with COVID. We ask, oh God, again, for safety and protection for all healthcare professionals taking care of patients. We plead your mercy for those who are out of work. Father, you created us to work. Work was never intended to be worshipped or ever to take your place. And for that, God, we repent. But Father, many are employed today. Many have lost their jobs due to this pandemic. We beg you, we plead with you, safely return people to work that they may provide food and shelter, clothing and safety to their families. We pray for the leadership of our country. Our country begins a new year of elections and we'd need wisdom for days such as these. The devil would love to use the issue of skin color to divide your people. And you've called your people, God, throughout the ages of time to represent your kingdom, your kingdom, above whatever country it is that we live in, to teach men and women who Christ is and that in Christ we are one. We pray for our country and electing new leaders. Father, our communities, our cities, our counties, our states, and our country needs good leaders. Father, we pray first of all that you bring a Holy Spirit great awakening to the United States. And I pray that specifically because this is where I live. Start with the churches, homes, towns, cities, states, and the whole country, and then the world. Father, leaders make decisions that affect other people. We pray, God, that you bless our leaders and our future leaders with knowledge for the skill of living rightly. The church, you have called out of darkness to be light as taught and empowered by the Word and the Spirit. We ask you to grant influence, God, upon our sister churches in Washington, D.C., in Northern Virginia, and in Maryland. May we be faithful in worship and discipleship. Father, we make this prayer expectantly, believing you will hear and that you will answer. We offer this prayer through King Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our hope for eternity. In his name we pray, amen. Brothers and sisters, let's sing together as we respond to the word preached by our brother, how deep the Father's love for us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory.
behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Our strong God is mighty fortress, almighty El Shaddai, all-powerful and holy Adonai. Your name is wonderful, Counselor, eternal Prince of Peace, Christ Jesus the Messiah and our Lord Emmanuel. The shepherd of the flock of Israel, the guardian of Zion. The name above all others, Jesus Christ. You are the bright star of the morning and the word who dwells with us. The Alpha and Omega and the Lord who reigns on high, Jairah the God of our provision. Shalom, the one who is my peace. Shamar, the God who never leaves us. El Elyon, the Lord most high who reigns. Jehovah Rapha, healer, the one who cures my pain, Jehovah Sidekenu, the Lord our righteousness, Elohim, Elohim, Lord, praise to you, our great creator, who rules over all. 
our strong God is a mighty fortress, a mighty El Shaddai, all-powerful and holy Adonai. Your name is Wonderful, Counselor, Eternal Prince of Peace, Christ Jesus the Messiah and our Lord Emmanuel. The shepherd of the flock of Israel, the guardian of Zion. The name above all others, Jesus Christ. You are the bright star of the morning and the word who dwells with us. The Alpha and Omega and the Lord who reigns on high, the God of our provision, Shalom, the one who is my peace, Shema, the God who never leaves us, El Elyon, the Lord most high who reigns, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Sidekenu, the Lord our righteousness. Elohim, Elohim, Lord, praise to you, our great Creator, who rules over all. Jehovah Rapha, the one who cures my pain. Jehovah Sidekenu, the Lord our Elohim, Elohim, Lord, praise to you, our great Creator, who rules over We're so thankful for you joining us for worship this morning. What a great reminder to close our service to remember our amazing triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who cares so well for us. And as we go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and our fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and always. Amen.